is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. Welcome back to the Andy Wakefield Podcast. My name is Lori Gregory, and Andy, we're so privileged this morning to have a special guest with Dr. Christiane Northrup. Dr. Northrup, thank you so much for being with us today. We know you, I guess, really the, the big breakout moment was in the, was it the 90s with Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom? You got it, 1994, yes. And, and we have the post-Me Too version coming out, you said, next week? That's right, May 12th. I just fully updated it because when the Weinstein scandal hit, in 2017, I was absolutely transfixed because I was seeing that everything that I saw in the 80s, what what was really happening to women and how their bodies were a barometer of the suffering of, I would call the feminine in this culture. No one believed me. No one believed my patients. They were all thought, everyone thought they were crazy. And then when the world woke up to the, to the Me Too thing, it was galvanizing for me. I thought, finally, finally. And then I just updated and revised the whole thing. Now, Andy, just come on in here. This is your podcast, so we're not going to let the ladies dominate. Um, and <laughs> um, even though we're I think talking it's about... Mother, it's, it's Mother's Day. That's okay. You know, we can let that happen. Yes, but you know... I have... <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say that men like you are the really... Your job, the masculine, is to protect and serve. And you have done that so beautifully because the the research you've done, what you have stood for, what it does is it gives people like me more and more strength to come out with the truth we know intuitively. But when we have the left brain science and the logical linear thought process, it is enormously strengthening. So thank you so much for your work. I, I've followed you for years. I can't believe that you're still standing. Actually, I can't believe I'm still standing, but here we are. <laughs> here we are, and thank you very much for that. I'm gonna tell you a story, but I'm going to start just by saying that I've always been, from my earliest days, surrounded by very powerful women. For example, my mother was She's a physician, and she was one of the first of four women who went to St. Mary's Hospital Medical School. When they first started admitting women, uh, she was one of the first four. And she had an absolutely marvelous time. She was a very pretty girl, and so she got a lot of attention. But it was <laughs> nonetheless a, a challenge. It was a real challenge for women going into this. And, and my wife is a doctor and indeed was the the, the brightest, the cleverest medical student in our year and, and won so many prizes, they had to have a meeting to decide whether she could win any more or not, whether, <laughs> whether it was simply, un, simply unfair on everybody else. And so I've never had a problem with it. In fact, it's been a, an essential part of my growing up. But the story I want to share with you is this. One day we were on vacation in Spain as a family. We were up in the mountains in southern Spain. And my son, my second son, I have four children, d developed a fever and he was had a, a cold. He was up in bed and we were up in the bedroom with him and my wife was tending to him, just cooling him down. Suddenly, she jumped up. 
She ran across the bedroom. She ran down the hallway, down the stairs, through the kitchen, across the yard, across another courtyard, into the pool area, and leapt into the pool, just as my baby daughter was walking down the last step before she would drown. Now, it was extraordinary. It was absolutely extraordinary. What voice inside her told her to do that, exactly that? And the timing was extraordinary. Uh, and she saved my daughter's life as a consequence. I didn't have that feeling. I didn't have it at all, but she did. And that to me is evidence of one of the most powerful instinctual connections, instincts in mothers that I've ever witnessed. I've, it's, it's inexplicable on a, on a sort of, <laughs> I suppose, a molecular level. It's more of a, it's, it's the reason we're here on this earth. We're not here because of public health or the medical profession. We're here because of that instinct. And it is something that has been usurped in modern society by the man in the white coat, the doctor, the pediatrician. I know your child better than you. No, you don't. But that to me was an extraordinary event. And, and one of the things that really has been a guiding light in my medical career has been listening and listening in latterly, particularly to uh, in the last 25, 30 years to mothers telling the story of what happened to their children. And here we are many years later, and they were absolutely right. Absolutely right. The medical profession was wrong, almost to a man and a woman were wrong. And I just wanted to share that with you and discuss that instinct because mothers need to reassert themselves. They need to listen to that voice because it is so powerful and so important. And I have heard so many times mothers saying, I knew there was something wrong. The doctor was about to give that injection and something inside me said, do not do this. And I, I, it was too late. I ignored it and it was too late. I share that story with you and I, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Women, mothers must reassert themselves. I couldn't and, uh, agree more. I think that was, you have just articulated the entire reason that I wrote Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom. I wanted to give women the science, the confidence to speak what they already knew. And I've had women all over the world tell me that the reason the book has meant so much to them is that it simply asserted what they already knew and, ha and had been taken away by the medical profession. Now, I was lucky enough to be brought up by a dentist who had a brother and sister who were both medical doctors. And my father was into the microbiome before we had the word. He would take yogurt to his patients who were on antibiotics. My mother made the yogurt. We had a compost heap. We ate organic food. And his brother and sister, the MDs, made fun of us and called us health nuts. And when we drop something on the ground that we were eating, my father would say, it's okay to eat it. Let the world pass through you, and then you will be immune to everything. I knew from the earliest day that well baby visits were nothing but 
a chance to indoctrinate the child and the mother into the medical industrial complex. And I remember my own children when they were about, I don't know, six, seven, they said, mom, are we ever going to see a doctor? I said, probably not. <laughs> no, both, <laughs> both so you know, I was a doctor. Their father was uh, an orthopedic surgeon. He didn't agree with me. So, you know, one time when I was away on a speaking engagement, he took one of the kids in for one shot. I think maybe an MMR, that's it. So my children who are in their 30s were minimally to not vaccinated. The youngest had one uh, DPT at age 16 because a camp nurse begged me to please get her a tetanus shot. Now, at this point, I wouldn't even do that. And I watched in my profession from the first time I hit the decks as a med student at Dartmouth Medical School, and the, the baby would be born. First, the mother was gowned and draped like it was a surgical site, like the birth canal and the opening was a surgical site. You know, and I'd rush to get the drapes on her because we're going to do this operation. The baby would come out and then they would cut the cord immediately and whisk the baby off to the nursery, quote, to keep it warm and to clean it up. So what my whole career was to unpeel these ridiculous things that were done, because I'd look at the mother at longingly, longingly look as the nurse rushed the baby to the nursery, like this was some emergency. And I could see this was wrong. And I, there's a, a wonderful play called Birth. And the first line is, I want what my dog got. <laughs> <laughs> So, it's a wonder, isn't it, that we're still alive? How did we survive? How are we still here without being draped and cleaned up as babies? Oh, no kidding. And so the first time I ever, this was I was a third year resident at Cambridge City Hospital, and I put the baby on the mother's abdomen because I knew this is what needed to happen. And that if the baby could become colonized with the mother's skin microbiome, it was much less apt to get an infection from the hospital stuff. And I put the baby on the, on the mother's abdomen and left the cord to pulsate, which is how nature intended it, as your lungs and your heart are going through the most profound changes of your life. Nature gives you a backup system known as an umbilical cord. And the woman's hand touched my glove. And my attending physician said, she touched your glove. You're no longer sterile. And I said, doctor, I just delivered a baby from the vagina. The only way to sterilize it is to boil it. And, <laughs> you know, so I think the, the key all along was to have uh, a great deal of love for my profession and for my fellow um, people. But at the same time, just keep pushing the envelope and having having women women would come to me really from all over the world because they wanted a certain kind of care a certain kind of uh, birth but you are so right if i couldn't ignite that mother bear and many times i could not even now uh i'm astounded by the fact that any woman would allow the, the thing that I, a friend of mine said her sister is about to deliver in Florida. And in Florida, where you are, in the hospital she was is going to, they're not allowed to have anyone in there with them 
because of this ridiculous thing going on. You know, Andy, when we look back at how do you subdue an instinct, a society, our human nature, you do it by separating the family. The family unit is the most basic unit for health. We know from studies of prisoners of war in World War II, it was not the thugs from the street, the ones who were tough, the tough guys from Queens who survived in the concentration camps or in the prisoner of war camps. It was the ones who came from happy households with a strong family unit because this wires in our sense of safety and security and our sense of belonging. And this in turn wires in the strength of our immunity. And it seems to me that from day one, what the medical profession does is undermine that sense of safety and security and wants to always bring in the medical expert because you can't possibly know without this person in the white coat. And my entire career, like yours, has been based on listening to mothers, listening to women, listening because they know. And they'll, they'll often preface that, well, I'm not a doctor, but, and I'll say, no, 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 no. <laughs> you have knowledge of your body. I have a body of knowledge. The only way this is going to work is for us to put those two things together because you have inner wisdom. And when you're talking about your wife's situation with the baby, I had a friend who was in a car accident. She was hit by a truck while she was out running. And at that very moment, her mother awoke from a sound sleep on the other side of the country and said, something's happened to Mary. So if you, here's the way I see it. Our bodies make the bodies of that child. What I say to people is you made a pair of eyes, you made two kidneys, you made a liver, you made a pancreas. Chances are pretty good that you know what's going on with your child. Yes. The more I look into it, there's this concept of connectivity that, as you say, you were w once one. You and that baby were once one and you will never be separated. So it doesn't matter how far in space, in time, molecules are disconnected, they still communicate. And this is a fascinating concept. Of course, that doesn't happen for the father to anything like the same extent. But for the mother, you and that baby were once the same piece of living tissue and you will never be separated. And the more we learn, the more less we know. I mean, I'm just reminded of two things from what you say. One is the discovery of congenital rubella syndrome. People say, oh, these you know, clever men in white coats. And it wasn't, it was two mothers in an, an ophthalmologist's office in Germany who shared in that waiting room the knowledge that their children had suffered visual defects for the reason for them being there and that they both had rubella infection during pregnancy and they told the doctor and the doctor listened and that was the beginning of the discovery of congenital rubella syndrome it wasn't some genius in a laboratory coming up with a. <laughs> right. it was the mother's intuition being passed to the doctor and the doctor taking the trouble to listen the other thing that struck me is you know this discussion i've had with medical professionals about infant survival and what it, what babies actually need. And they say, oh, yes, but look, the, you know, the infant mortality rates are so much lower now than they were. And I say, yes, and why were they high? 
they were high <laughs> in the days of Semmelweis because doctors made them high, because we were spreading infection from the morgue, from post-mortems directly without washing our hands as doctors and medical students to the, to, to the lying in ward and, 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 to, and to mothers having babies. And yes, there was a high maternal and infant mortality as a consequence. And we were responsible for that. It wasn't that nature was any less adept at, at, at birthing babies, healthy babies. It was the medical profession once again who were right at the core of the problem. So we really need to relearn where we came from. Absolutely. And there is this, uh, this mother bear instinct. Part of my training was to do circumcisions. And I remember the first time I was taught and the attending physician begins and says to me, the, the child doesn't feel it. And, uh, the, and then we started and the child is making sounds that any human would know were sounds of excruciating pain. The medical student fainted on the floor oh. and I had to do at the time I did hundreds of circumcisions as my job. On Saturday, I'd go in um, to make rounds, and the babies would be lined up on the circumstraints, you know, kind of crucifixes for babies. And I began to research this, and I saw that there was no reason whatsoever for this barbaric procedure. And back in the early 80s, I tried to talk parents out of it and mothers, and I'd give them the information. And... Very few, very few changed their minds. But now, I think the, the routine circumcision rate is 60%. At the time that I was doing it, it was in the 99% in the United States. So if you look at what it takes to... Then I would also, I would, I would say to the mother, well, then if you're going to have it done, then why don't you come in so that you can comfort your child while I'm doing this? Not one would do it. Not a single woman would do it. Wow. And then I would take the baby to her and she would weep. But, the, but how she'd been brainwashed is he has to look like his father. Right. That's and, what you hear all the time, right? Which, it, which is crazy. My, um, my sisters had three sons, did not circumcise any of them. And so... She tells a funny story. They would be in the bathtub. They'd pull back the foreskin and they'd say, now I'm like daddy and then push it back. Now I'm like me. Now I'm like daddy. Now I'm like me. So, you know, there's, there's no trauma involved with that at this point. But it shows you, to me, it showed me the absolute strength of a belief. The belief was so strong that you know that you needed to do this oh and now now what we have i'm a member of doctors opposing circumcision and they get i don't know how many calls a day from pediatricians who retract the foreskin of intact babies because they don't know how to take care of an intact normal penis they don't know and so they retract the foreskin the foreskin is like think um kitten's eyes you would not go ahead and forcibly open a kitten's eyes. The mucous membrane that keeps them sealed gradually changes and the eyes open. Well, it's the same with the foreskin. It's supposed to be adhered to the glands, the prepuce as it's called, um, until such time as it becomes more flexible. And generally that happens by the age of eight, 
Uh, it happens much sooner in most, but sometimes not until eight or nine. And so what people say is, well, we better do the circumcision so it won't have to be done later. But the reason so often that it has to be done later is that the pediatrician started messing with it. And then the baby would cry. So we actually came out with stickers um, to put on the diaper if you had to go into the doctor. I'm intact. Don't retract. Now, this is another <laughs> this is another example of the medical profession. That's great. Uh, it, it, it's so arrogant. It well, is me, so me, it, arrogant. It is absolutely. I, 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 that's a, a wonderful. It, here's that. Here's the thing, and you and then you summed it up at the very beginning. I watched a, a, a documentary on this where someone from the American Academy of Pediatrics was sitting there, lauding the merits of circumcision on the basis of absolutely nothing, and said, right, right. "We were trained. We were trained to believe as pediatricians that babies do not feel the pain." Oh, oh. This is one of the most, this sums up pediatrics for me. I'm sorry, but this sums up pediatricians and American pediatricians in particular, for the most part. There are some very good ones there, but this kind of thinking. Pain is a defense mechanism. It is something that you withdraw from. As the most primitive of life forms, amoebae, anything, it is a noxious stimulus that causes you to retract from the pain, the source of the pain, and to survive. In other words, it is one of the most primitive things that go that take part in multicellular organisms, is the ability to react to this noxious stimulus in order to survive. Now, when our brains develop, when our central nervous systems develop, the first things that develop are the most primitive elements of our embryology. And those are the pain pathways, for example. So from the very beginning, even before we have higher centers and neocortex developing, we are able to perceive pain. So the idea, the simplistic, the childish notion amongst pediatricians that babies don't feel pain, therefore it's okay to do this, is so utterly bizarre and so utterly wrong. And that is that really sums up the way they seem to perceive the world and have perceived it for a very long time to justify doing something that, as you say, had no merit whatsoever. That's right. And now here we are. I, I just um, you sent me that video of the tracking going on in Ventura County that might potentially separate a child from its parents. Now, let me tell you another story from my childhood that radicalized me, which is why I'm like I am. My mother gave birth to a little girl named Bonnie when I was about five or six. She had viral pneumonia the entire pregnancy and the family was sent to Fort Lauderdale to a little cabin on the beach for her to get some sunshine. But she was given streptomycin the entire pregnancy. And when Bonnie was born, Eventually, she wouldn't eat, and she ended up hospitalized at the age of six months, uh, died in a pool of vomit because my mother was not able to hold her and be with her. We never knew what was going on. She could only look through a little window. My brother, Bill, was born later. Again, he wouldn't eat. It wasn't pyloric stenosis. No one knew what it was. He was hospitalized, and one day my mother goes in, and a nurse says, if I were you, I'd take him out of here. The doctors don't know what's going on. 
and they had told my mother that he was mentally uh, defective. Um, something was wrong with him. And she said, I looked at him. Now, this is my mother. I looked at him, high school education. I knew he was fine. And they signed him out against medical advice and then fed him every hour on the hour. My dad knew how to put down an NG tube. And finally, at the year, age of a year old, he weighed 10 pounds. And they found a, a pediatrician, Dr. Crump, at Women's Medical who put down a fiber optic scope, said his esophagus is so eroded, you got to stop this uh, tube. Let's just wait. Let's just wait, see what happens. And in two days, he started to eat. He would cry because it hurt, but he started to eat. And when my mother brought him home from the airport, at the airport, he was eating a roll and we all cried. And it's the first time I'd seen him without adhesive tape on his face keeping in the NG tube. When I, when I went for my first interview, University of Buffalo Medical School, my person who interviewed me, wouldn't you know, was my brother's attending physician. And he said, oh, you're from the, you're that Ellicottville Northrop's. Um, and he fully expected me to say that my brother had died and was defective. I said, no, no, he's perfectly healthy. And I wanted to say, no thanks to you. <laughs> and when I uh, interviewed in other medical schools, my dad was sent into the coronary intensive care unit at Buffalo General. In three days, he calls my mother. He says, Edna, come and get me. They don't know what's going on. He had uh, infiltrated IV, phlebitis from that, had a fever. He signed out against medical advice. The nurses were furious. So he walks out with the chest lead still on. When I come home, from interviewing, he's sitting up in a chair, fluid two thirds of the way up in his lungs, lung fields, reading The Godfather, and he healed on his own. He had had infectious pericarditis, not a heart attack. He was right. They didn't know what was going on. So I remember ironing. I'm sitting there ironing in my home, and I had decided to go to medical school because it was a better degree than a PhD. And my mother says, Well, I, you know, I really hope that uh, something that you don't get swallowed up. I said, no, I, I'm going to go and learn why doctors won't tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't, you didn't say that at your interview though. I'm sure. <laughs> no, 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 I didn't. But, but here's, here's the thing. And you and I both know there are wonderful things about our profession, but trying to separate the, uh, the child from the parent is the very worst thing you can do. And of course, we've come light years now uh, in pediatric wards. Families can stay now in, uh, in labor and birth. We have family-centered care until now. <laughs> until now. So it seems like we're going, we're going backward. Uh, the maternal mortality rate has uh, at least doubled in the last 20 years. And that's because when fetal monitoring came in, um, to this day, by the way, for all you listeners, there's not one single study, not one, that shows that fetal monitoring does anything more than increase the C-section rate. I happened to be uh, an intern when monitoring came in, and I watched the cesarean section rate soar to 25% within a year because nobody knew how to read the monitor. And then let's talk about another way that the mother is um, disenfranchised. You walk in to a laboring mother's room and you say, how are you doing and what does she do? 
She looks at the monitor. She doesn't close her eyes and go inside. Everyone looks at the monitor. So you have made the monitor the way you tell what's going on. A better way to do it is to, if there's fetal distress, you put her in the left lateral recumbent position and you tell her to go inside and tell her baby that it's safe and watch the monitor strip calm down. I love that. Yeah. Well, and since we're talking about testing and banning and all of this type of stuff, I I would really love to talk to both of you about what's happening now in this quote unquote COVID, post COVID, whatever we're in world, and the testing and tracing video that's now making the rounds in social media outlining what both California and Oregon are doing and the 20,000 plus people that are being hired in the state of California at $19 an hour with the promise of maybe college credit to start monitoring people and removing people from homes, including children, if there isn't a separate bathroom for everyone and if the parent is, is, is test positive for COVID and is sick, then the child will go to a substitute home. I don't know if either of you have had a chance to look at this, but Governor Newsom, uh, <clears throat> Newscom, <clears throat> excuse me, um, is really aggressively testing and pushing this policy, I think really is a ground zero to see how much the American people will tolerate <laughs> in the loss of their HIPAA rights and their health freedom. And I would love to just learn more about what the two of you think about this. Well, first of all, the test is, I have been trying so hard to find out what the test is, how it works. I saw a post yesterday from, uh, I think, the president of Tanzania, and he said his uh, goat tested positive for COVID and a pawpaw <laughs> tested positive. Um, and then there was another thing on, on um, social media where a man tested positive and an hour later pe- tested negative. Um, I'm not sure what we're testing. And right, I certainly right. do, n- do not uh, trust the test. They're testing some kind of an RNA strand. And uh, just because one tests positive means nothing. I listened to Zach Bush yesterday, one of my heroes, Mm -hmm. and he said the real problem here is the fear of death. And if we hadn't scared everyone to death, we would see that what we have here is a flu. We have a flu. It's a corona flu. However, there's a um, kind of a move afoot to scare people to death so that they will give up their civil liberties. I've been in touch with that wonderful Marine who stood up in Sacramento for mm. our our liberties. We, we need more of this, but we won't have it when people can still be so controlled by fear and the mainstream narrative. So for that, we need, again, Andy, it goes back to what we're actually talking about. Where is the fierce mother bear uh, energy that, that says, why are we doing this? This is, I, I talk to many, many mothers now, their children on a screen, eight to 10 hours a day for schooling. I just hear that Bill Gates wants to reinvent public education, which will be virtual with screens. Uh, these things are very bad for a kid's health. We know that. So 
I, I, we have to get this mother bear uh, enlivened, I think. And we do it by uh, appealing, I believe, to the, well, our humanity. We have to. And this is, this is, Andy, what we saw in 2015 when SB 277 hit California. The awake mama bears tried to wake up the other mama bears that this is the beginning of the encroachment of your rights. And it really is the death of the mother's intuition. And, um, you know, it's, it's what we're looking at. And I think it's why so many mothers really have this hero worship of you, Andy, because you are the masculine that is standing up to, to protect us and say, this is not okay. And I'm a doctor and I'm a scientist and I can tell you why it's not okay. And, you know, we've seen marriages split up over this. Yes. It's it's really horrific. Yeah. The landscape of what's happening to the mothers. And, you know, even this whole shelter in place has been an assault on the mother because we have mothers that are trying to work at home. Now they're trying to homeschool. They're now cranking three meals a day. They sometimes have a husband and a dad now that are working at home. He has to eat three meals a day. They're trying to keep the house tidy. They're trying to do the laundry. They're trying to keep the cupboards full. It's, it's really, we are, we are the unsung heroes and Mother's Day should be really an an incredibly powerful day of honor this year because the mothers have gone through hell with this. Now remember that Mother's Day was created by women during the Civil War who were telling the government we no longer want to tolerate our sons being killed. That's how Mother's Day started. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, this started for me when we witnessed with HPV vaccine, the vaccine, coronavirus vaccine, yeah. When that started, and they start, they said to you know kids at school, you don't have to tell your parents, you don't need their permission. I'm talking about destruction of the family unit. You yes. take the mother, your mother out of the equation immediately. Take her instinct for her child's well-being, whether he should or she should have this vaccine or not. Take that out of the equation by saying to the kids, you don't need to tell anyone. You now have the right to do this yourself. And what that leads to inevitably as part from destruction of the family unit and that trust between child and parent is the ability of the industry to say, and if you have your full course, we'll give you an iPad or we'll give you this. Or so bribery then comes into it so that, and none of that of course gets back. It's, it's ter- shocking, absolutely shocking. And then now we see this even further with the, the threats made in California and elsewhere to the family structure by saying, we are going to take your child away. What perfect opportunity to raise their cortisol, depress their immune response, and lead to a worse infection. I mean, on a biological level, a sociological level, on a humanitarian level, it's absolutely abhorrent. And people really do need to wake up. Fortunately, I think they are. I'm seeing so, so, so many people waking up now. And it comes down in the end to who you're going to vote for in this in the November election, because there's one side that will take away your bodily autonomy, will force you to get vaccinated from cradle to grave and uh, lead to the demolition of the American family structure. And there's one that hopefully won't. And uh, you've got to make up your mind what you do and who you vote for. But 
it's a defining time. It really is a defining time in the survival of the human race right now. Um, and they're not going to be, it's not, you know, either the Gates side of this equation, either the Fauci Gates pharmaceutical industry side of this equation is going to win or it's going to be those invested in health freedom, a natural approach, the right approach, a considered approach, the protection of the family, the protection of the family, the trust in maternal instinct. There's not going to be a middle ground. And people need to wake up to that reality. That's exactly right, which is why in my work with uh, millions against medical mandates, uh, and you know, you and I were on that same conference call, that to me is a sort of overarching organization where I just want people to get on the mailing list, <laughs> seriously, so that everybody who believes in health freedom, whether it is a fundamentalist Christian, whether it, it just doesn't even matter, it doesn't matter because... When I was on the front lines of the vaccine mandate law thing in Maine, I would write letters to the editor that, of course, never got published. And uh, I would say, if we lose the right to decide what gets injected into our bodies, no other right means anything. Anything. And I was astounded. I'm, I'm still astounded by the vitriol that has been leveled against you, against me. But I agree with you, people are waking up. It's very fun almost, it's like whack-a-mole, isn't it? That as soon as a video gets taken down, someone figures out a way to put it up. And it's gotten to the point where I, people say, well, how, who do you know, how do you know who to believe? I said, well, I would believe the stuff that keeps getting taken down. It must be. It must be very threatening. Otherwise, it's not it wouldn't. Someone, that's for sure. You know, like it, you think about. Um, you know, you think about. Well, this is a conspiracy theory. Fine, you're not taking about. You're not taking down the Bigfoot sites or the flat Earth sites. No. You're not taking down any of those. <laughs> It's, it's it's a hypocritical landscape of mass proportions. I mean, Vimeo has turned into a cesspool. There's like 170 million viewers per month, and you can find everything from neo-Naziism to extreme um, adult content that never should be allowed on the internet. But of course, that's completely free and open and, you know, censorship free. But if you try to put the trailer for Plandemic, of course, you're going to be taken down, which is exactly what happened yesterday. The interview of Dr. Judy Mikovits for the documentary Plandemic was pulled. Um, BitChute seems to be the new place to kind of hang out. Uh, right. That's where they've now put that site. And I know there's um, Doctors in Black, I think, is one of the... Uh, there's all these mirrored sites that are popping up on YouTube uh, it's extraordinary, and uh, it just proves that we will not be stopped. And I think that that's precisely why we're seeing people like Adam Schiff, who my friend Roger Stone has dubbed Adam Piece of Schiff, which I think is quite appropriate, um, is, you know, being, uh, is, is completely colluding with Silicon Valley they, they really let the cat out of the bag with the internet. I mean, let's face it, the internet is the fourth dimension, right? Inter information used to take four days to span the globe. Now it takes four minutes. And so 
they, they, they can't reel it back in. It's really kind of impossible. Uh, you know, we've been working with Sphere, S-P-H-I-R dot I-O, which is a health freedom uh, community established censorship free platform and we're just starting to ramp up over there so every time something gets banned i try to rush over and put it on sphere so that we can start you know well that's good so can you spell that again sure it's s p h i r dot i o and they're lovely and they're they're working as fast as they can to really build out this robust platform there are some hiccups but Andy has posted uh, Who Killed Alex Sportalakis over there, which is a really important film. I don't know if – have you seen that film, Dr. No, North? I have not. No. It's, I'm going to brag on you, Andy. It's a short film that Andy and Polly did some years ago. It's a little over an hour. And I think Andy wasn't originally – it was for A&E. It was going to be a, a series on A&E. I think this was the pilot that you guys shot. Um, it, it was it was for Sky Television out of Europe, and it was mm-hmm. um, it was going to be a before, during, and after reality TV series on taking families broken by autism and healing the family by healing the child properly, and and it turned into something very different. And uh, and I'm not surprised they didn't pick it up because just in that one episode, it ended up being a bombshell. Andy covers in this episode the story of this young man named Alex Sportalakis. It was just him and his mother and his godmother, and they would have to roam from temporary housing to temporary housing because after being injured by the MMR and being autistic, he ends up at 17 a very large man and would get frightened by sirens and go into tirades and rages, and he gets completely, completely abandoned by the system and in four point restraints, naked on a gurney for 72 days in an emergency uh, room. Uh, and uh. the story does not end well for him um, because of the desperation of his mother to try to handle the situation. I'm not going to tell the whole story, but I will tell you that that little film that Andy made is the first time in American history that a sentence has been commuted for jail for a murder because of a film, because the judge saw the film and commuted the sentence of the mother after a tragic ending. So I encourage everyone to watch it. It's not for the littles. Don't, it's not a family movie, but it's an important film to see. And I think we have it for $2 and 99 cents. You can rent it over on sphere. Look for Andy's card. It's Andrew Wakefield. We're going to change that back to Andy, but right now it's Andrew Wakefield. And you go to the product button, and you'll see right now there's one product there. Okay, so, good, good. Um, that's an important film. And also we will, you know, we're, we're hoping that um, Sphere are, are really going to be protected because they're, they're set up by some really smart pe- people in the tech sector, <laughs> much smarter than me in the tech world that uh, are able to get around this censorship issue. So we're going to stream 1986, the act there. And um, Andy, you've just done an extraordinary job on this film. Um, and when is this film coming out? Mm. Um, it will come out. 
it's waiting for it's going to be birth it's going to yeah it's going to be birth it's going it's going to we're be we're having birth, Braxton naturally. Hicks right we're having Braxton we, Hicks at this point <laughs> well, I think we're having everything for the center preview every <laughs> anyway, we uh, it it is we're waiting for the results of one study to be announced which are part of the film uh, it'll probably be around June the first that's our hope okay now Andy can you talk talk a bit about the fallacies of the COVID testing? Well, firstly, I, um, I can't. I, I can to an extent, because I, but I've been so buried in this film that I've been somewhat negligent in, in my reading of the, the COVID. Right, right, so right. I, I, um, I, but as with all testing, it is flawed. Whether you're testing antibodies, which antibodies, whether those antibodies tell you that you are immune or that you're currently infected, or whether they cross-react with other forms of coronavirus that you've historically been infected with, whether they are non-specific in their reactivity, such as reacting with elements of pawpaw or goat, <laughs> or whether... This has haunted the test development in this area for a very, very long time. Yes. yes. And if if you, I'm told that if you're, if you've just had influenza, you will test positive for HIV in an antibody test. Now, the, the consequences of that misdiagnosis are clearly potentially catastrophic, potentially fatal. So, every test has a false negative rate and a po false positive rate, and that really is something that only emerges over time and thorough testing. If you're measuring other elements of the virus, such as the viral genetic material itself, using molecular amplification technology, sequencing technology, those are equally fraught with problems. The extraordinary sensitivity of viral detection techniques like the polymerase chain reaction mean that contamination is most likely the result, a positive result is most likely the result of contamination rather than anything else. So right. they have been, even though the technology won the Nobel Prize for Kerry Mullis, it turns out to be its own worst enemy because it's so exquisitely able to amplify the, the, the gene copy in a logarithmic way, you end up with laboratory contamination, sample contamination, and uh, results that are utterly meaningless. So laboratory testing for the evidence of infection is fraught with hazard. And we spent years working on this and developing it and being constantly frustrated. And so when you are making policy decisions or individual decisions, such as taking a child from a home based upon a test which is inherently flawed, um, then you're making inevitably, in many, many cases, uh, a catastrophic decision uh, for right. all the wrong for all the wrong reasons. So, as a general overview, that's my position on on testing for viruses. Um, the specifics of COVID nineteen, I don't know about because I've I've been so busy with this film. But it's it's time to catch up because uh, we've got a new film to make. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Yes, it, my goal is to keep Andy very busy because we do have five on the runway, Andy, really important films about truth and science. 
about health freedom, about whistleblowers. And I think we're at a really important moment where the pharmaceutical industry and the government handmaidens that serve them have overreached. I'm so thrilled, Dr. Northrup, when, when we see that Marine in Sacramento and the hairdresser in Dallas yes. who stood up and said, no, I need to feed my family. This is ridiculous. I think we're going to see more of that. When I see it, we have a president who says we simply can't keep the country closed because I don't think, I don't think America is going to tolerate that. It's time for us to stop thinking red team, blue team. It's time for us to really start looking at our fundamental rights to shelter, to feed our families and to live in the world. So we are so grateful to you for taking time out of your day to be with us. Anything the two of you want to wrap up you two powerhouses before we sign off? <laughs> Let's do it again. Yes. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. Let's absolutely. do it again. Yeah. That would be wonderful. And I would love for this to be at the very least a mother's day tradition, but Let's have you back on soon, Dr. Northrup, and we will we'll, we'll talk about the next phase of, of the health freedom journey. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. My Thank pleasure. you. You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield Weekly Podcast, a place where stories are being told that have never been heard before. This is a 7th Chakra Films production in collaboration with Brick City Creative. Please follow and like us while you still can on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 1986 The Act, and soon on Sphere. <laughs>